Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two. Thank you for listening to the Successful Life Podcast. We have no dues or fees, so please refer this podcast to a friend. Make sure you rate, review, and hit the subscribe button. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I am your host, Corey Barrier, and I am here with Marcus Aurelius, Anderson. Hey, Marcus, welcome. What's going on? How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great, brother. How about yourself? I'm phenomenal. Excellent. So I, um, you know, it's funny. I will tell this, I'll tell on myself a little bit. Um, you know, I, I feel kind of silly because I didn't connect, you know, Marcus Aurelius. There's, there, there's a, somebody that's much older than you called Marcus mm-hmm. Aurelius. And, and I know nothing about that person. And so I was listening to a book and I kept hearing Marcus Aurelius and I'm thinking this book is talking about you. And so I, I b- blindly sent Marcus several messages about this and I got a response and I thought, well, wonder why that is. And then I figured out, well, he probably thinks I'm an idiot because he think because I thought this guy in this book was talking about him and he's talking about somebody else. So <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny anyway. So um, Marcus, I cannot wait to hear, uh, you know, about your story, who you are, what, how you got to where you are. And I think there's going to be some really, really cool shit that I'm about to learn about you that I don't know yet. So I'll let you kind of take off from there. Yeah, thank you, man. It, my, uh, <clears throat> yeah, Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor. My, uh, my grandfather named me, and at a young age, you have no idea what an emperor is. So, you know, I'm eight years old. I'm being introduced by my full name to people, and you see this look of recognition on adults' faces that are strangers to you. You have no idea how do they know who this person is. And at a young age, the closest I could understand was they tried to explain to me that he was an emperor. I didn't get it. They said he's like a king. And uh, at eight years old, you know, I didn't feel like a king. And the word Marcus seemed so heavy. So I actually went by Mark until I was in high school because there was so much gravity, just Marcus, because to me, it rolled directly into this other person who has all this, you know, strength and gravitas and, and historical significance. But the thing is now, at this point in my life, I, I use the full name simply because it's impossible to live up to it, but I endeavor to be worthy of the moniker and all that I do every day. Sure. And that's, that's the goal. 
So um, started doing martial arts when I was little, about 11 years old. Uh, loved philosophy, understood that Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic, and tried to read Marcus Aurelius's meditations when I was about 13. And it just went way over my head. There's no way I could understand it. It was like reading the Bible and like old Latin almost. So these thou thethest edith wodethrodas. And I was like, I don't know what this means. And I did that when I was 13, but I wanted to understand it so badly. So I went back to the bookstore and this is before the internet. I'm 47. I'm an old guy. And I go back and I asked the, the bookstore person, I was like, is there, are there any other books by Marcus Aurelius? And for those that don't know, Marcus Aurelius wrote the book Meditations. He didn't write it for us to read today. He wrote it. It was basically like his journaling to himself. So he's on, he's on an actual campaign. He's actually at war against the Germanic armies in the north defending Rome. So he's actually writing these things out. And these are more like reminders to himself. If it is endurable, endure it. Wake up today. You know that there will be people that will be slandering you, the people that will not agree with you, people that will be, you know, malicious against you. That is not your problem. Your problem is what you can control. So those kind of things were more like his own self, you know, trying to give himself that reassurance and it kept him moving forward. So, so basically I was out of luck on trying to find another book by him, but I went to the philosophy section and in the philosophy section, they had this book that was faced out that had this beautiful like Chinese calligraphy. And that calligraphy reminded me of the martial arts school that I was at because they had calligraphy on the walls. I was like, huh, that looks neat. So I pick it up and I open the book up. And the first thing that I read, it says, continue to pour into your cup and it will overflow. Continue to sharpen your knife and it will go blunt. And even at 13, I was like, okay, that makes sense. That's a great, great example of what's going on. The book is called, it's the second most read book in the world. It's called the Tao Te Ching by um, Lao Tzu. And it's a book on Taoism. And it's 83 little chapters or just one page. So even at that young age, like I could feel accomplished by reading just one page. And there's like this huge lesson in it. And you turn it and there's another lesson. And I just went through and read that. And I read it slowly and I tried to digest it. And it really made sense to me. Um, it was very minimalistic. It was talking about hack away in the inessentials. And so that was one of the things that was really like my gateway philosophy to better understand stoicism as I got older. And then uh, stoicism is that the, the concept of, again, controlling what you can control, not worrying about the outside opinions or the outside forces around us. And Ryan Holiday and a lot of people have really made a lot of books about it with The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy and, and all these other books. But um, you'll find it in anything. You'll find it in the military when they say embrace the suck. Um, when you're, you know, an art, if you're an entrepreneur about embracing the grind and understanding that that is part of the, the journey. But it was more about having this spiritual capacity to understand it in a way that was palatable, but also in a way that was pragmatic that could serve me. Because frankly, a bunch of flowery bullshit doesn't really help you when you're in the heat of it. Um, Fast forward to when I'm 38 years old. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm in chiropractic school. Uh, I've been married for about a year. And uh, I'm doing about 25 hours of doctorate level courses in chiropractic school. So I'm just really, really pushing myself. In addition to that, I'm bartending about 40 or 50 hours a week because I'm trying to not be in as dead as much as I could. So that's, you know, I'm getting about three hours sleep. I'm pushing a lot harder than I, I probably needed to be. But in my mind, 
I was a year and a half away from my doctorate. So in my mind, it's like, okay, we're, I'm married. I need to push through this. I need to, to embrace this so that the faster I get through this, the faster we can get out. I can create the practice. We can have a family and you live happily ever after. But like I say in my book, in my TEDx talk, um, in this life, there's what we hope will happen. There's what we fear will happen. And then there's what actually happens. So for me, I, in this life, we have priorities. And the priorities that we have are not the ones that we declared at the outside world. The priority that you have is the one that you continually choose over and over again, that continually pour attention and time into, and that is what your priority is. So even if you're telling the world that your priority is to be in better shape, but you're at home sitting on your ass, not working out, not eating food, not eating good food, and not doing what you should be doing, the world can actually see what your priorities are. For me, I prioritized school. I prioritized work. Because in my mind, that would secondarily prioritize my relationship. Unfortunately, what happened was because I did not pour into the correct things, my marriage fell apart and um, I got divorced. Not long after that, my great uncle, who was the biggest real male role model for me outside of my father, my parents were divorced when I was younger, so I spent a lot of time with him. My great uncle was in special forces. He was in Vietnam. He was in long-range reconnaissance. So he was the guy in Vietnam that they, he would drop, they would drop a team off. It was his team. They would go out and do all this, you know, special black ops shit, basically. Um, sort of a badass. He was, he was kind of a big deal. Yeah. He, uh, he was a badass. But the thing that was that I, the, the, about the most of him that I remember was that even at like, say, 11 years old, 10 years old, he never would talk about what he had done. But yet people around him had this like reverence. There was this air about him and this respect. And he was the first one to really explain to me the importance of like honor of hard work of being honest, of being humble. And that all came from this quiet. They, they call people in special forces, quiet professionals because you don't jump up and down and talk about all that stuff all the time. And again, that goes right back into that idea of stoicism. If he's back into the idea of Taoism from that book, it, reads back into the concept of, of Zen and Buddhism and all these things. So uh, a week after my divorce papers go through, I get a phone call from my dad in Oklahoma and he's like, Uncle Ronnie's sick, come home. And I book the next flight that I can. By the time I get back to Oklahoma, he's already passed. And, uh, you know, so now I'm going there from, from seeing him for the last time to being the lead pallbearer. And I'm, I'm keeping, keeping my shit together pretty good. I'm being stoic. Right. And we, we set the casket down and they have the full military honors, all the regalia, 21 gun salute, you know, all of the color guard, a full bird colonel goes and eulogizes my great uncle and talks about all these incredible things that he had done. After that, another man goes up and talks about another act of valor, talks about something else that he had done. Half a dozen men go up and talk about these things. And I'm just blown away by the impact that this man had had on literally thousands of people's lives directly. And I'm still keeping my stuff together. And then they start playing taps. And then they start folding the flag into a triangle 
and they march over slowly and lockstep and they write face and they hand the flag to my great aunt who I'm sitting next to, to console. And they say, thank you for your sacrifice. We're sorry for your loss. And I just lose it. I'm just fall apart. I have nothing. I'm supposed to be there strong for her and she's there consoling me. And I realize now as a coach and as being more in touch with what was going on, I was, I was mourning the loss of my great uncle, but I was also mourning my divorce. And I was probably mourning other things that, that had gone on as well that I had sacrificed in the process. And I had always wanted to join the military. And like so many other people who want to join the military, I had excuses for why I couldn't or why I thought that I couldn't. But again, it's about priorities, right? If everything in your life is a priority, then nothing is a priority. Fair. So I'm 38 years old at that point. I have no kids. I'm divorced. I'm in college. I'm in chiropractic school. I go talk to the school and I say, what happens if I join the military? They say, if you go active, we will pause exactly where you are and it will be like you, like nothing's happened. You can come back when you're done and you can finish your doctorate. I'm like, sweet. Go talk to a recruiter. Go talk to him. Walk in. And I say, what's the age limit? He says, 35. I turn on my heel to leave. He's like, how old are you? I said, I'm 38. He says, why don't you come over and sit down and have a seat? I was like, uh, frankly, don't waste my fucking time. If this is not going to happen, then don't even entertain the dialogue. And he says, well, why do you want to join? And I explained to him what had happened. And then he says, uh, are you smart? Well, I said, I don't know. I'm talking to a recruiter at 38 years old. Do I sound smart to you, Sergeant? But the, the concept was he was wanting to know if I could do well on an ASVAB test, their, their placement test. Well, again, I'd have a degree in human biology. I'm running a doctorate level course. So you give me that, I crush it. He gives me their PT test, their physical test to see what, how many push-ups, sit-ups, how fast I can run. And for my age bracket, I max it out. He's like, okay, you're smart. You're a natural leader. You're in great shape. He's like, you are exactly what the army wants. And he says, and I can sign a age waiver for you if you want to come in. I'm like, let's do it. Now, before I sign it, he says, I want to find, I want to let you know that you're making a great decision in the army. You get to be the one who chooses whatever job that you want, whatever you're qualified for. So for me, I'm at the very top of everything. I can literally pick any job that I want in the army. And he shows me, you know, one job where it's about, uh, you know, computer technology and it's about like onsite security and it's about, you know, different like drone warfare and all these different things. He's like, you can choose any of these things. He's like, plus if you do that here, you can do a three or four year contract here, get all this education, have like a top level clearance, get out into the civilian sector, have three years of experience, plus walk into a job that six figures easily, yada, yada, yada. I was like, yeah, I already know what I want to do. He's like, Oh, what do you want to do? It's like infantry. And he's, and he, he does the same thing. He kind of sits back and he smiles. He's like, He's like, you don't get it. He's like, you can do whatever you want. And I said, uh, you know, you don't get it. This is what I want. And if I don't get this, I'm walking out the door. And for the people listening, like infant, you call it infantry, right? Yeah, light infantry. That's literally like, it. correct me if I'm wrong, this is technically the lowest like position. That they, that's what they give average or below average people, correct? Yeah, the, the people they can't that aren't smart enough to, in their mind, the people that aren't smart enough to do other things, they put in the infantry because at least they can, if they're in shape and they can shoot a weapon, then they can be a soldier. And 
you know, and, and that was the thing too. He was said, well, you have a degree, you can go in as a, as an officer, you can go to OCS officer candidate school. And I said, would I be guaranteed to be in the infantry? He said, actually, no. He said, you'd be in the most competitive category to be in a leadership position. Now my great uncle was in, was enlisted. You know, he was like, he was a master, he was a lifer, but he was in the enlisted. He was a master sergeant. So for me, I was like, well, okay, I'll go in enlisted. He's like, you want to go in at 38 years old with a college degree enlisted as an E4 with absolutely no experience. And you want to go in right now in 2011 in the middle of war. I was like, yep. And we continue to go back and forth and he's explaining to me and I was explaining to him and I said, listen, I want to follow in my great uncle's footsteps. I want to push. I need this. I need this adversity to make me go to another level. And after about half an hour, he finally just signs the waiver, slides it over to me. He's like, man, it's your life. And six months later, I'm getting out the bus at Fort Benning, getting yelled at by guys half my age, competing against guys half my age, you know. And in 2011, this was back when uh, infantry school was still very um, intense, we'll just say. So the the goal is they want to weed out people as quickly as they can. And so they're... And and here I am. I'm 38 years old. I'm you're literally old enough to be the the father to the guys that I'm competing against. And there's guys younger than me that are breaking their ankles, falling, dislocating their shoulders, breaking their wrist, fracturing their hips because of all the impact because they're not prepared physically for it. And uh, the advantage that I had was my mindset. The advantage that I had was I went in prepared mentally for this. And of course I also trained my ass off for the six months leading up to it because I, in my mind, it was going to be just like, um, like full metal jacket. Like that's what I had expected. And anything that was less than that would be a welcome relief. And, uh, in some ways it's, it was worse. And in some ways it was better, you know, so it's hard to really know. But the, the goal was if I knew that I could keep my body from breaking down on me. I knew that I could get through the the mental hardship. I knew that I could go through the sleep deprivation, you know, all that stuff. So I get through infantry school. I get through advanced individualized training, graduate, don't have to be recycled, don't have to start over and uh, get to my unit at 10th mountain in upstate New York. Now at that time, 10th, 10th mountain was the most deployed unit in the history of the military. If you've ever heard of black Hawk down, if you've ever heard of operation Anaconda, and the reason why 10th Mountain was deployed the most at that point was because when special forces would go out, they would have 10th Mountain attached to them as support. When the Ranger battalions would go out, they would have 10th Mountain attached to them as support. And then 10th Mountain would have their own infantry deployments. So we were, you know, all over the place and we're an airborne unit as well. So you can literally put us in a C-130, drop us off 20 clicks from the objective. We will march to it through hell or high water and get there and then use violence of action to, to go through what we have to do. So as soon as I hit the ground, they were like, I want you to get ready. Cause we're going to pack your trash. We're going to be deploying soon. So I go from this very high intensity training to like even more intense training. Cause I already thought that the hard training was done, but no, I was just beginning to get a taste of what it could be. They would push our deployment back. And in the military, if, if you get an additional three months to train, you don't slow down, you click it up. Because you realize through that training that you're willfully, you're just in horrible condition for these things. And so you do everything that you can because there's nothing that will motivate you to train harder than the knowledge that somebody else's life is in your hands. There is nothing that will motivate you to train harder than the knowledge that if you do not have 
your equipment squared away, if you're not in condition, if you're not hydrated, if you're not paying attention, if you don't have situational awareness, then somebody else will die. So that was the level of stuff we were doing. The week before my injury, we had done a 50% ruck. So that means they take 50% of your body weight and they weigh you the day before. I weighed 180, so they put 90 pounds in my rucksack, my, my big backpack for civilians. Then you have 50 pounds of your body armor on. Then you have your, your weapon system. Then you have your helmet on. Then you have your, your gas mask to simulate a battle condition of like a chemical environment. And this is negative 20 degrees outside. This is in upstate New York, 30 miles, of the Canadian, 30 miles south of the Canadian border. So this is the middle of winter. You're doing this on the ice, and it's a 25-mile ruck march. But my squad leader did not let us ruck. He's like, in combat, you don't get to ruck. He's like, you have to run. What do you mean ruck? So I'm um, just doing like a ruck march. You're just marching okay. along, trying to march this 25 miles. He's like, in combat, you don't have the luxury of marching. He's like, we're jogging. So you're basically running a marathon with almost 100 pounds on your back in the ice, through the snow, through all these things. And it sounds crazy as a, as a civilian, but it is what is required to have even a prayer to survive in combat. Because combat is going to be twice, if not three times as bad. And so you're just, it's really just the tip of the iceberg, really, what they're conditioning out of. And it sounds like from over here listening to you, it sounds like complete hell. I can't even imagine having to run or jog or walk 25 miles with a hundred pounds on my back, much less having to save somebody else's life or try to save my own or whatever the case may be. Kenny, I can't even fathom that. So go ahead. I'm sorry. No, but that's, that's what, that's what you have to do. You have to, you have to, the thing was like most of the workouts that we did weren't even really workouts per se. It was more just like a test of your will every single day. And you had to click that notch up every time because we had precious little time to get ready. In 2012, while we were preparing to deploy, um, I actually suffered a spinal injury, a disc in my neck ruptured, and I was paralyzed from the neck down. So, I literally wake up in the morning and I try to roll out of bed and my neck will articulate a little bit, but my body won't fire. And yeah, that's what I was thinking. Now, luckily for me, somebody was knocking on my door, going to be knocking on my door earlier anyway to, 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 re- to get a report. So when they knock on the door, you know, I realize quickly, cause here's the chiropractor coming back at me, right? right. I'm thinking to myself, okay, either this is, like temporary, I'm just sore. And I actually chuckle at myself, oh, the old man's sore. And then I realize if I'm not moving in the next couple of seconds, this is a serious neurological problem and there's something big going on. As they knock on the door, I'm realizing I can't move. I yell through the door and I'm not really the kind of guy that fucks around. You know, if they're like, if I say I can't move, they know that I'm not fucking around. They knock the door and they come grab me. They take me to the hospital and all of a sudden, as soon as we get to the hospital, they've got me on the gurney. They're running through. And it's just like, for better or for worse, it's just like the movies. I'm lying in a gurney. There are all this army of people around me running with me, shining lights on my eyes, clicking and poking and prodding on me to try to figure out what's going on. Will me into the ICU. They tell me not to move. No problem. They check everything out. And then they put me in a holding room. Then the nurse comes back about 15 minutes later. And she's like, we're going we're gonna to prep you. I'm like, prep me for what? 
And she says, well, for surgery, dumbass. Because in my mind as a soldier, I'm still thinking of the objective of what my priority is, which is I have guys that are counting on me. We're preparing to deploy. I'm thinking to myself, hopefully they can just give me a shot, give me a pill, and I can go back and do my job. And, and I actually remember asking her, I was like, is there some, is there a way that we can just, you know, avoid this? And at that point, like my neck and my head are in so much pain and I'm having a hard time like breathing. And she's like, you know why you're in so much pain? And the reason why you're having a hard time breathing is because all the stuff in your spine that's being compressed right now is like the control center for you being able to breathe is the control center for you being able to do anything that you need to do. If we don't operate on you, you're going to die. So I go from being this, you know, Oklahoma guy who's, you know, I've had stitches before I've, I've been in my first grade, but I never had to go to a hospital. And now I'm going from preparing to deploy to being told that I'm getting ready to be cut on, go under the knife. So again, I'm sort of in denial. They wheel me down to the operating room. There's over a dozen people outside the room waiting for me, which doesn't make me feel good. I'm like, what are you guys doing here? They were like, we're here for you which shows me that this is going to be a big deal. And at first I'm still really resistant to it, but they're like, listen, you know, I'm the primary physician. This is the primary surgeon. This is the secondary surgeon. This is the tertiary surgeon in in case something happens. This is the anesthesiologist. This is the backup anesthesiologist. This is this nurse. This is this nurse. So it made me feel a bit better to know that I was in good hands. And then at that point, the neurologist is there. And I said, so what's going on? You know, he tells me, hey, the disc in your neck's exploded. And for those of you that don't know, there, there's like ruptures, but there's also like where the disc, the disc is almost like a jelly donut between the vertebra and your neck. And that's like a, it's for cushion, right? It's, it's to protect from impact. But once that protrudes and explodes into your spinal cord, everything from that nerve root, from C5 from me, from C5 down, is just completely basically blind. There's no way that there's any cerebral spinal fluid or there's no way that there's any communication that could go from your brainstem to the rest of your body, which is why I couldn't move. So I asked them what it is. They were like, yeah, we're going to do a disectomy, which means they remove the disc. They're going to fuse my, my neck together. And so the, you know, the chiropractor, I mean, I was like, Oh, so once this completely ankylosis, what are we going to do? And I'm using like all the terminology and the neurologist is like, how do you know what that is? And I was like, that's not really what we're talking about here what's, you know, so as soon as they remove all the disc and they remove all the debris and they fuse my neck, then I should be good to go. Right. I'll be able to walk again. Right. And then it's just silence crickets. And that's not what you want to hear when you're, when you can't move your hands, you can't move your legs, you can't feel anything. And he says, well, there is some damage to your spine, to your spinal cord. And he said, so let's just kind of get through this and then we can figure the other stuff out later and figure out what's going to be normal for you. And that's when I'm, now I'm starting to get scared and I'm starting to get mad. I'm like, what do you mean what's normal for me? You mean this is going to be what's normal for me? And they're like, just trying to calm me down. And they were like, listen, let's just get through this. They put the the anesthesia over my mouth. I got down from a hundred, I get to about 98. Um, And then there's just this like, it feels like a second and then it feels like eternity. And it's very dark and it's very cold. And then I wake up in the ICU and what little movement I had in my neck is gone. They've got me in a neck brace and I'm 
looking around. So you have to remember that I went from zero six in the morning, waking up paralyzed, being told they're going to have to operate on me. I found out later the operation was supposed to be four hours. It took almost nine hours. And now I'm in, now I'm in a bed where I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what's going on. And I'm trying to figure out if this was all a bad dream. You know, the military part of me is like, am I a wall? You know, what's going on? Do people know where I'm at? And, um, that kind of opened up my eyes. The nurse, there's a nurse next to me and she's like, welcome back to the land of the living, Mr. Anderson. And I don't really know what she means by that. Um, a little bit later, the surgeon walks in, he step, he sits at the foot of the bed and he says, uh, Mr. Anderson, you had us, uh, you had us worry there for a while. We lost you. I didn't know what he meant. I was like, how do you lose me? I'm a big, you know, 180 pound guy. He's like, no, he's like, you flatline. Like we lost you twice like really lost you twice. He said, every time we would go up by your spinal cord to that part of your cerebellum, he said that the, you would crash because we were so close to that, that center that was recovering. That was actually in charge of like your respiration and everything. And so that explained why I had like that, that place where I was in that, that darkness, that, that coldness. And he says, uh, he has a very congratulatory tone though. He says, you know, you get to live to tell the tale. He says, the good news is you, you survive. He says, the bad news is this is what you're left with. So I'm asking him, I said, so do I recover? What happens? He said, listen, if you were going to recover, it would have happened by now. He says, if we took all the pressure off your, your spinal cord and took all the debris off of it, like taking your foot off of a hose, if it's not damaged, then everything should be working normally. He says, that he says, can you move? He's like, can you feel anything? I said, no. He said, then this is probably what you're left with. He said, and honestly, it would be irresponsible for me to say that you will have anything other than this because to give you false hope is, is not what I want to do. So I'm uh, obviously not very happy about it. And he says, listen, you know, just try to wrap your mind around that and I'll come visit you, you know, later. And so that's a, uh, that's when I start honestly, I'm in denial though at that point, because in my mind as a soldier, I'm like, okay, he says I overcame death. So if I can overcome this whole death thing, I should be able to walk. It shouldn't be a big deal. Right. Um, you know, the day turned into night, it turned into day. And then, uh, it just kept going. And after being in the ICU for a week and then they pulled me back, it took me back to my unit. That's when it became very obvious that this was very real. I turned 40 years old. I celebrated my 40th birthday in a bed, broke, divorced, bedridden, and paralyzed, wondering what the hell do I do with my life now? God almighty. That's fucking unreal. It's oh, obviously it's very real. I, I, I don't even know what to say. This episode of the Successful Life Podcast is brought to you by House Call Pro. Whether you're looking to streamline your operations, reduce paperwork, or boost revenue, House Call Pro is your all-in-one business solution. Transform your business today with essential tools and support designed to drive efficiency and deliver exceptional customer service. To learn more, click the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's um, it's a very, it was a poignant moment in my life. It was, it was the beginning of the, uh, 
of my journey, I, I actually went through, like I said, like this denial phase initially, but those of us that understand, you know, trauma and understands people trying to, you know, deal with death, with grief. For me, it was the death of my old self. So I was in the very first stage, which is denial. Once you get beyond the denial, denial stage, now you go through anger. And I was very angry at everyone around me, but the person that I was the most angry with was myself. I was angry because at 40 years old, I realized how much time, opportunity, and talent I had wasted because I assumed that I would always have the time, the talent, and opportunity to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. So we've all heard people say, you don't know what you got till it's gone, but that's not true. You know what you have. It's just that you assume that you will always have it. And in this life, nothing is guaranteed. And that's what happened to me. That's made me really look at what was going on. I was angry at the people around me, but I was angry at myself more. And the definition of depression is anger that is directed inwards. So I was livid at myself. And that's when I went into a deep depression. I was to the point where I was suicidal but I couldn't even act on it because of my injury. So, so in an instant, I went from preparing for war on the battlefield to a war within my body and mind. And that's when I really had to start doing the deep, deep soul searching, the work to figure out, okay, what do I do now? If this is what my life is and if this is what I'm left with, how am I going to navigate this? And that's, uh, I went through, about three months of just horrible, torturous self-reflection and, and anger and depression and all that stuff. And we were talking bef- about philosophy before. And in my mind, I keep hearing like all these little like snippets coming back. And like I said, it sounds like flowery bullshit when you're in it because that doesn't help me. Telling me that there's opportunity within this and where's the beauty in this doesn't help me. Tell me that if it's endurable to endure it doesn't, help me. I, I want to die at this point, but there's nothing I can even do for that. Like I'm literally trying to figure out how to do it. And the only way I could figure it out was to ask somebody to do it for me. And I know that I can't do that. So I'm stuck here having to look at what's going on. The thing that saved me was the philosophy. And then they had this concept. They say, if you take yourself out of the equation, you can see it for what it is. Because for so many of us, whenever we're in the heat of something, when there's emotion involved, emotion assassinates the truth. It stops us from being able to see what's really going on because we're so close to it. So for me, what happened was I said, okay, did anybody in the world, anyone, can I think of anybody who benefited from my injury? Because obviously I'm not benefiting from it. And that's when for a split second, I thought, okay, well, I think that this injury would have happened irrespective of where I was in the world. So if I'd have been deployed in Afghanistan, if I'd have been on the front lines with a team, if we'd have been dropped off and this had happened to me, now it made me start looking at it differently. For every one man who was injured, it takes two men to pull him to safety. So if I'd been in combat and this had happened, I would have compromised my team. I would have compromised another team. I would have had to pull down another squad another battalion would have had to come in. They would have had to fly in a Chinook into a hot zone to come get me. And when I did that, I was able to look and say, wow, there were 
30 other people at least whose lives would have been put in harm's way had I suffered this injury if I were deployed. And for the first time in my life, I had unconditional gratitude, 360 gratitude, real gratitude, not just bullshit gratitude like people have today, right? Sure. Everybody today will talk about the right, the things that they like, and they'll talk about what they're grateful for. But it's really easy to be grateful for everything in your life when everything's going well, right? Yes. When you're happy, when you're healthy, when you have money, when you're eating, you know, this great meal with your family and friends, of course, you're like grateful for everything. It's even at that point, easy to be grateful for somebody else's hardship because you're like, oh, well, they're going to get through that. They're going to get stronger from that. They're just got to keep on pushing through. But in this life, real gratitude you cannot just cherry pick the things that you like and be grateful only for those things because that's not how gratitude works. You have to learn to be grateful for everything in your life, both the good and the bad. If you spend half of your life and you spend like, let's just say for easy math, you you have a day, let's say today, and you say, you know what? Half of the stuff today, I'm really, really grateful for, but the other half I didn't like or the other half was bullshit. If you do that with your life, that means there's going to be half of your life where you are losing opportunities to learn. You are losing potentials to get stronger. You are losing the, the, the capacity to look at an area that you need to shine a light on. These are the things that make you grow. If you're lifting weights, you don't get stronger by lifting the same weight over and over. You have to put more weight on the bar. If you're trying to do a deep emotional work, you have to have the uncomfortable conversations both with yourself and with other people. If you're trying to do all these things in business, you have to do the work. You have to do the stuff you don't want to do. You have to hire somebody to do these other things. And then you have to have the wherewithal to keep pushing through. You have to go through and say, where is the gift in my adversity? Where is the opportunity within this? If you can have the same amount of gratitude for winning the lottery as you are for the person who cuts you off in traffic and gives you the finger, then you're bulletproof. Because now no matter what happens, everything is a gift. The good things will encourage you while they're not so good things will encourage you to be grateful for what you really already have. And there will be opportunities for you to get stronger. So in my book and in my TEDx talk, The Gift of Adversity, I say adversity doesn't give a damn about what you feel. It doesn't care about your emotions. It shows up unannounced at the most unopportune time without apology. It forces you to up your game and play at a higher level. It never allows you to coast or do just enough to get by. Adversity knows your true potential even when you do not, which is why it kicks you in the ass when you give less than 100%. In the end, you are only as strong as the adversity that you overcome, and adversity gives you no other choice. And when there's no other choice... The choice is simple. That's really, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you say that about the gratitude part. Let's circle back around for a moment to that. Um, I was talking to another guy earlier, and and I said, uh, you know, I said, my wife asked me five years ago what I wouldn't change. And I said, well, I guess it would be getting married to you. Simple, common, smart answer. Um. And true. She said, well, what about 10 years ago? And I said, uh, I said, well, I would, I wouldn't change the fact that I got sober. And she said, what about 15 years ago? I said, I wouldn't change the fact that I got caught with four ounces of cocaine and I got a trafficking charge and now I'm a felon. As much as I hated 
those things, especially the 10 year and the 15 year, I wouldn't change them because it's made me the person that I am today. And and another quick example, I'm driving down the road 30 days ago and one o'clock in the morning, we're headed to Charlotte, which is two and a half hours from here. And a fucking deer runs out in front of me and I smash my car all to hell. And it puts us back a couple of hours. But I said, my wife freaked out a little bit. And I said, you know what? I said, the reason this happened was because we probably would have been hit by a tractor trailer 15 minutes from now and be dead. That's why the deer ran out. Now, I don't know if that's a fact, but that is exactly how I looked at it. And I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, there's the thing is, there's opportunity in everything that happens to us. And Victor Frankl talks about this. He just calls it a reframe, right? I mean, he's, he's incredible. Victor Frankl says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. There is a gap. Within that gap is our capacity. That's our strength to decide what this means. So for us as humans, something happens. And then we give what just happened, that event, we give that meaning. Whatever meaning that is, that it causes us to evoke an emotion that emotion leads to thoughts and potentially leads to action. Right. So for me, I reframed mine. I saw my, when I truly started seeing my adversity as a gift instead of a curse, when I was grateful for everything, when I was grateful for the bed that I may never get out of and the room that I may never leave a week after I started actually genuinely doing that, not bullshit, but really did. I started getting feeling back in my left hand. Now it wasn't a lot, but it was more than what I had. And even that, even if all I got was a little bit of movement back in my left hand, I was grateful because I was better off from where I was. So gratitude is rooted from love. And when you think about love, you think about somebody that you love unconditionally, right? So even if you are upset with that person or even if they do something that pisses you off, if you have unconditional love for them, you will always love them. Gratitude is unconditional as well. And that's why you can't just think the things that you like, like it's a Christmas gift and say, here's my list of the things I'm happy about this week. It's like, no, the things that make you stronger are the hardships, the things that make you better adversity. When you're going through it, it feels like it hates you and it does, but it only hates a small part of you. It hates the weak part of you. And that's what it's trying to do is trying to strengthen that because until you get stronger in those areas, it's impossible to go to the next level. So whether it be in your life, whether it be in business, whether it be physically, whether it be emotionally or spiritually, these are the things that make us stronger. And as human beings, the way that we're designed, we don't respect something that is easy to accomplish. It's true. We don't. If it were easy, we wouldn't respect it. It's the same reason why when you coach somebody or when you provide a service, you have to charge because people don't respect what they don't pay for. So true. And that's it. So we have to understand that 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 adversity that we are facing is there to make us really examine, do you want this or do you just think that you want this? Because if you want this, this is the price that you have to pay for greatness. And the, the reality is you have to choose to do that every day because every day adversity will give you an opportunity to quit. Adversity knows us. It knows the insides and outs. It knows the things that we want to hear. It knows, I I call them rational lies when I talk to clients. People rationalize things so that they don't work out, so they don't stay on their diet, so they don't do the work. But those are rational 
lies. These are lies that we tell ourselves because to us, they seem rational. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I could just cancel this interview because I knew I was going to be about 15 minutes late. No, I was like, I need to get this done. I need to make sure I have an obligation. So I explained to you what was going on and here we are. I could have easily rationalized it. I could have easily done something else and you would have let me, but that's not what this is about. This is about keeping my word to myself as much as it is to you, as much as it is to your audience. And if you can rash, and the problem is if we give up and we compromise at one facet, mm. it will bleed over into everything else in your fucking life. God. If you, if you give up at the first sign of adversity, you're literally conditioning yourself to quit when you should be fighting the hardest. Every time. And that's it. You know, Andy made a great, Andy, made, Andy had you know, one thing he said, he said, you know, it's as simple as wiping for the men listening, wiping the piss off the seat. If you, can, if you can't take two seconds to wipe the piss off the seat, then guess what? You're probably not going to do anything else right. And it, and it really hit home for me because, you know, I, I didn't think about the little things. And when he said that, I was like, wow. And it goes back to, you know, you do one thing. How you do one thing is how you do everything. And it's so, it's so true. And people can see through that if you're, you know, if you're half-ass incongruency, let's just go with that. If, if I'm telling you a story and you can see that I'm full of shit, that does me, does you, doesn't, it doesn't do anybody any good. Well, and the, and the big things in life, they're not just a big thing. They're an accumulation of a whole lot of small things, a whole lot of small decisions. Very few times is it just one huge thing that happens. And the huge things that usually happen to us are usually the hard things, usually the difficult things, usually the things that we don't want. So the things that we are trying to build, understand again, like you were saying, how you do one thing is how you will do everything. What you make as a priority, you have to continually choose to do so. And the reality is the reason why I always say that you have to look at adversity as a gift is because in this life, adversity is an inevitability. It will never go away. It will never stop bumping into you. And the reality is I've had people that say, well, I've never been through that kind of hardship that you have, Marcus. I've never had a, you know, I've never died. I've never been paralyzed. That's fine. Adversity is relative to each individual person. But the most important thing to understand is if you don't prepare yourself mentally for adversity now, when you have something really big come home to you, you will be ill-equipped. And that's when your life will fall apart. And some of those people that have been through adversity and never recovered, those are the people that develop mentally that happens at 25. And then that's the same life that they will live every year until they die because they have not learned the lesson and they have not moved forward from the experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, wow. I can't, I just, I'm in disbelief with your story. I mean, it's, but, but like you said, it's, it's relative, right? I mean, it, I, I look at whatever I've been through with drugs and alcohol and, you know, my bottom, so to speak, would be in my life would be the same equivalent as yours. You know, obviously I look at yours and I'm like, wow, I didn't go that far, but still I had my personal right. bottom and everybody has their personal bottom recognizing what that is and then moving forward and taking action to change it 
is a different story. Yeah, adversity is not a competition. And uh, I had a a sixteen year old girl come talk come up to me after I spoke in um spoke in Atlanta, I think it was. And she comes up and she's like, You're so brave. And she's like, Your story is my story. And I didn't quite understand. This was a girl who had been sold into human trafficking at twelve. Right? So we both know that the those years could not have been easy. And she's coming up to me and telling me, Oh, you know, your story is so inspiring. You're so strong. And in my mind, I'm just like, you got to be out of your mind. Like what I went through was nothing compared to what you've gone through. And we're both just like meeting each other in the middle, acknowledging that hardship. You know, she like came up and give me a hug and it was like, you know, we both break down and it's a beautiful moment, but it shows that again, it's not about how much I've been through compared to somebody else. There's something that I have is called an adversity scale. So zero is heaven on earth. And at the very top of your scale, the 10 is the worst thing you've ever been through. So for me, it was death and paralysis. Zero is, you know, when you get to do everything you want to do. And the nice thing about that is I, I said earlier how assassinations, how emotions assassinate the truth. So for a lot of us, if we're stuck in traffic or our coffee's not hot enough, we can get pissed off about it, right? But if you're really honest with yourself and you put this on, plot this on a, a scale and say, okay, in the grand scheme of things, 10 being way up here and zero being down here, is this, how bad is this? And usually it's like a one or a two. And if you don't have the wherewithal to do that and you want to just sit there and wallow in your own self-pity and be a victim, then that's when you need to start thinking about other people. Start thinking about that 16-year-old girl and say, wow, she's able to recover from that, recover from that kind of human slavery, drug addiction, being forced to have opium put into her body. Yeah, I think you might be able to suck it up and get through the rest of your afternoon because I'm sorry that your latte is not hot enough, but I think you're going to make it. If we look at, if you can hear us right now, if you can hear our voice, you are better off in three quarters of the population in the world because that means that you can hear us, you can understand us, that you have electricity, that you have the capacity to do all the things that you're doing from a, from a physical standpoint, which means that you probably have clean water, you probably have enough food, you probably have a place to sleep at night. So I'm not saying this to first world shame anybody, but I am saying this to tell you this. You are capable of a lot more than what you're doing and you're taking a lot of shit that you have for granted. And if you're not going to go above and beyond with what you already have, and if you don't have adversity kicking you in the ass, then you better look for it because the hardest adversity that most of us will ever face is the adversity of being mediocre, of doing just enough to get by, of being maybe a little bit better than the rest of our friends in high school or college or our job maybe having a talent that we rely on instead of trying to actually get smarter or stronger, a better or better equipped at a skill set. And we will continue to do that. And we will be attracted to people who do the same thing that are mediocre. So now guess what? Your relationship is mediocre. Your job is mediocre. Your home, your car, your thoughts, your relationships, everything in your life is mediocre. Why? Because you're afraid to look at adversity. Yeah, no, you are spot on. Spot on. And, and and you, I mean, like you could not have said that any better. Uh, and, and it kind of goes with, it's so, 
I've never really heard anybody put it quite like that, but you're absolutely right. And the problem is, is once you get in that mediocre rut, so to speak, and, and you do surround yourself with the mediocre people and your, your brain then begins to think mediocre. You don't think outside of the box. You don't think how to get better. You think like the people around you or your spouse or whoever it is that you're most influenced by and they're all mediocre. So you're not going to get better. No. And I mean, in our state, we talk about this all the time. Ed and Andy always are, are telling us. And even in the entrepreneurial world, we always hear people say, you're the average of the five people that you surround yourself with. But that's not entirely true. We are, we are the average of the, the emotions that those people evoke within us. Right. So again, if we're around five mediocre people, then what, what are they doing? They're probably bitching and moaning about simple stuff that they could be, you know, taken care of. They're bitching about a football game. They're complaining about work or their job or how bad the weather is outside. Can you control any of that stuff? No, no. So, but no. Right. And the stuff, and the stuff that you can control, you should be taking action on. So if you're around people that force you to level up, if you're listening to Andy Versella, if you're listening to Ed Milet, if you're listening to us right now, if you're listening to anybody and you're trying to get better, that emotion that we're evoking within you is like an inspirational kick in the ass to get it done, to quit waiting, to quit hesitating. In my book and in my TEDx talk, I say this, and this is the litmus test that will make you figure everything out. If you woke up tomorrow paralyzed from the neck down, what would you wish you would have accomplished with your life? All the stuff that's coming to your mind right now, that's what you should be executing on immediately. And now imagine that you had the opportunity to recover from that. These questions will change your life because those are the questions that changed my life because I was forced to ask them. I was forced to do the mental homework, the emotional work to get to that point. And now that's why when I was in that bed, I swore to myself, if I had ever had a second chance of another opportunity, I would never settle, never hesitate, and never compromise in what I wanted to do with my life from there on out. You need adversity. You need to go seek it out. You need to use it as your compass. Use it as the thing that pushes you. And I'm not saying to go out and do stupid shit where you're jumping off of a cliff or getting into a knife fight. But I am telling you that right now, if you're listening to me, if I put a gun to your head and said, what should you be working on right now that you're not doing? You know, yes, you know what it is. Here's the other two questions. What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing? What is the stuff that you're still wasting time on, still wasting energy on? Those things, again, these are the questions that make you start unpacking this stuff, make you start understanding, wow, I'm doing just enough to get by. Wow, I'm just floating by. Wow, I'm just doing enough to be a little bit better than the people around me. Wow, the people around me are making 50 grand. I'm making 65 grand. I'm really just crushing it. You're not asking enough of yourself. And the reality is, for most of us, it is easier for us to be mediocre than it is to sustain enduring adversity slowly and surely. And that's what you have to do, these micro-adversities, every single day where you demand more for yourself, where you get up a little bit earlier, where you walk a little bit farther, a little bit harder, where you run a little bit more, where you give a little bit more to other people, where you save money, where you delay your gratification in some capacity. All these things these small return, these small investments give you a huge ROI and they all dovetail in this capacity to have mental resilience, to have strength and to understand what the hell you really want in your life as opposed to letting other people tell you in this life. Listen, listen to me. You either decide what you want in this life or you become the result of somebody else's decision. 
period. That is it. Yes. No, you are exactly right. Damn. That's pretty heavy, dude. Like, I'm a heavy, but, I'm a heavy, but, heavy but, guy. But it's reality, and it's all it fucking true. Everything that you've said is true. And as you sat there and talked, I'm like, okay, so what is it that I'm, you know, what is it that I'm, that I'm not doing, right? What is it that I could be doing more of? When I think I'm doing enough, there is, there's always something that you can improve on. There's always something that you can change to, to, to be better. And when you said that, I got to thinking, like, I'm in the middle of brokering uh, a deal with a couple of people. And I'm thinking, okay, dumbass, you, why are you not reaching out to this person and this person and this person? Because they may have the answer you're looking for. Instead, you're waiting on one person. That's stupid. So when we finish this call, that's what I'm going to do is reach out to those people. Absolutely. The, the answer that everybody is looking for is not in a course. It's in the adversity that they are currently avoiding. Makes total sense. That's it. Makes total sense. Marcus, what, uh, tell, uh, what is the name of your book is? My, the name of my book is called The Gift of Adversity, Overcoming Paralysis and Pain to Find Purpose. My TEDx talk is called The Gift of Adversity. Um, you can find me on all the socials, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. My website's Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Uh, TEDx speaker, keynote speaker, best-selling author, uh, CEO, executive, leadership coach to multi-million dollar corporations. I speak a lot. I do a lot of workshops for companies. And uh, the goal is to snap people out of the slumber of their mediocrity and to kick them in the ass with some adversity and use it to leverage them to go to the next level as opposed to using it as an opportunity to give up. Fucking love that, dude. This has been fantastic. I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing your story. Marcus, like I really, I had no, no idea what to expect. I mean, I know you, but I just didn't know this in, in this much detail. So fucking A, dude, I loved it. Thank you so much. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. My pleasure. So with that, we'll close out and uh, I'll let you know when the podcast drops, but dude, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. I hope we got some good stuff. Dude, you are fucking great. So thank you very much, my man. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. You got it, brother. Thank you. I want to thank you again for tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. If you have not already subscribed, please do. And look, if you really enjoyed today's episode, email me at successfullifepodcast.com at gmail.com and tell me what it was you enjoyed. And if there's somebody that you want me to bring on, then email me about that and tell me who it is and I'll make sure it happens. So, you know, leave us a review, tell a friend and until next time, folks, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at CoreyBarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.